I invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse uh, 35 and read down through the end of the chapter this morning as we complete Mark 12 uh, in our series through this gospel. I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Three different either teaching moments or encounters Jesus has uh, that wraps up uh, this uh, Tuesday uh, during the last week before going to the cross. Starting in verse 35, we read, As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who, contributing, who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Will you pray with me please? Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers at Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who long to be in this place every Sunday because this is the place that our faith family gathers to be in one room at one time, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, praying together, honoring your word and hearing it applying it to our lives. Thank you, God, for what the men of this church experienced yesterday. I pray, God, that because of the challenge from your word, from both Pastor Jay and myself yesterday, the the men of this church, that there will be better husbands and fathers and grandfathers and friends and elders of our church. Not by way of our own effort, but by submitting to you your word and its instruction to our lives. Would you now help us to see Jesus clearly and help us to see obeying the instruction to obey him clearly. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Would you be seated? Can I just at the outset say there are a lot of you here for a federal holiday. Praise the Lord. I mean, we live in a place where, well, all of you get federal holidays. And um, 
President's Day is not always this well attended, so I don't know what happened. Thanks for being here, church. Today's sermon out of the end of Mark 12 is entitled, See the Difference. Do you remember as a kid, and if I would have had forethought, I would have had our kids director actually do this on our kids' activity page. Um, Do you remember as a kid doing the, like, find the difference game? There would be two pictures, right, for my office fans in the room. Corporate wants you to find the difference between these two pictures. They're the same. They're the same picture. Um, but as kids, they would be different pictures, and you would I like it. It was a serious undertaking to like find the ten differences, right, in the little highlighter book or whatever. And it seemed to a child, there's some children in the room. Like it seemed in the moment, like number one, it was really important. Like you needed to find all these differences, and it was hard, wasn't it? Like it was sometimes hard. Like just one shoe would be turned around different, you know, or whatever. And you look back at now, like as an adult, maybe, for the adults in the room, you look back at this now, and you're like, that wasn't all that hard, <laughs> right? You could look at one of those things right now, and you're like, nope, you could circle them all. Um, you grow up. Holy Week or Passion Week. And Jesus on this Tuesday, but we're going to take these last three together because they're really calling us to, to make a comparison, find the difference. Now, here's the good news. It's not going to be hard at all. Th- these are easy. Like Jesus isn't, you know, throwing a fastball over the plate. This, he is lobbing a softball to the audience. Because really what Jesus is asking us to compare and contrast aren't close things. They are worlds apart if we will truly understand what he is saying. So I invite you today to see the difference. The main idea of our sermon is that the reality of Jesus' true messiahship demands real discipleship. We're going to see the contrast between what was expected of Jesus, what was expected of the Messiah and who Jesus truly is, we'll compare that first. And then we'll compare what does it mean when we profess faith in Jesus to be a true versus a fake or false disciple. And these things truly are worlds apart. So we begin the first account and the difference between who Jesus is and who the scribes taught he would be. Look back with me in that first account, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So he is, so how is he his son? And the great throng, that is a crowd, heard him gladly. This is a who do you think I am question. That in some way, and really in a lot of ways, mirrors how this section begins in chapter 11. Where we're told that elements of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling class in Jerusalem come to Jesus on the day after he cleared the temple and really ask a question, who do you think you are? 
in verse 27 of chapter 11, he says, they say, uh, who, who, who do you, by what authority do you do these things? That was the real question that they asked him. But in truth, it was, who do you think you are? We're the authority here, not you. Remember, Jesus had amassed a crowd, a following in Galilee, which is kind of the country, right? He was in flyover territory, but he's now in the big city up against the wealthy religious elite of the first century, and there is a distinct challenge to them by what Jesus was doing there in Jerusalem. And so they ask him at the beginning of all of this, who do you think you are? Now Jesus at the end of this is going to turn around and really say, who do you think I am? Now he doesn't do it in, in that question. He doesn't look at the scribes and say, who do you think I am? He knows who they think he is. And he knows who they think the Messiah should be. Not because he's reading their minds, but because it is evident in their teaching. Really, this also parallels an important part of Mark, really on which a fulcrum on which all of Mark rotates. And that's Mark chapter 8, where Jesus is north of Galilee, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. He's traveling with his disciples there in Mark 8. And he asked his disciples on the way this question, who do people say that I am? So what are the crowds saying? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then he asked them specifically, his 12 disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. The Christ is a word for the anointed, the Messiah. You are the one sent from God, the one that had been promised all the way back all the way back to the garden where God promised that the, the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head, all the way back to Abraham that, promised, that God promised that through Abraham all of the nations of the world would be blessed, all the way back to David where David was promised by God that his throne would be an eternal throne, all the way back to the, prom, uh, the prophets that continually told of one who was to come. You are the Christ, Peter says. This is a vitally important question for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? I would say that the answer to that question is the most important conclusion that you will ever reach in your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? This has been an important question throughout the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus, we could say, as a prophet, we could say, as a good teacher, we could say, is a miraculous healer. But Jesus is those things and so much more. He is what Peter says, you are the Christ. And so it is on this profession of faith in parallel to that, having earlier in the day been asked, who do you think you are? That Jesus addresses who the scribes believed the Messiah would be. And who is he they believed he would be? They believed he would be the son of David. This is who they believed because the son of David had for about the last century been popularized within rabbinic teachings of Israel. So for about 100 years before Jesus, the, the popular idea of who the Messiah was is that the Messiah would be the son of God. 
We see this in Jewish writing from that day. So during that intertestamental period time, between the time of the closing of the Old Testament canon and the introduction of Jesus um, in, the, in the New Testament, we have this period of time in the intertestamental period. And a lot of things happened in there. Sometimes we refer to historic events that happened in there. I will refer to one next week, a historic event that happened during that period in my sermon on Mark 13 next week. And, and so there was, there was a development of Jewish teaching during that time, particularly about the Messiah. And really what, what spanned all of that teaching of the Messiah was that he would be the son of David. So Jesus knows this, and so this is the knowledge that he is questioning. He's questioning their understanding, not so much about himself, even though he is questioning about himself. He's questioning their understanding. He uses the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the entire New Testament is Psalm 110. Tonight during our third Sunday evening service, we'd love for you to come back. I'll talk more about it at the end of the service today. We're going to worship together at 6 o'clock tonight. And I'm going to preach very briefly Psalm 110. I think it'll be helpful for us not only as to fill out more of this sermon, but to move us into Mark chapter 13 next week. So I hope you're back from that. But it is the most quoted chapter in all Old Testament chapter in all of the New Testament. And so Jesus says, how is it, he's quoting, how is it that David, in the Holy Spirit, Jesus affirming that the Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Old Testament is God's word, that's what Jesus is doing. David, in the Holy Spirit, declared, and he quotes from the very beginning of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus tells us what David says, David says that the Lord, God, says to my Lord, the Messiah. And so Jesus then challenges this rabbinical teaching that that the Messiah would merely be the son of David by asking this question. How is it that David says, the Lord, God, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. He wouldn't say that about his son. He would say that about someone whom he was under. You wouldn't write that about your son. You, you, this, is, this is language that is, that is authoritative. It is language that, that shows that God the Father had a Messiah that sits above David. David uh, Jesus is not just in the Davidic line which he is, by the way, it's shown in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 that is so important to that gospel account. But Jesus is saying that he is far more than just David's in David's line. He is not inferior to David like a son would be, but he is superior to David like a Lord is. So what Jesus is doing is he's he's correcting a hundred years of bad teaching in the rabbinic tradition of his day, that they had embraced this idea that the Messiah would come as the son of David. And Jesus says the Messiah is not David's son, even though he's in his line, he is his Lord. Now, we've looked back on Peter's confession, what happens in Mark chapter 8. That's helpful for us. Now I want us to look forward at something that's going to happen. I'm actually going to get to this in just two weeks. I'm going to preach all of 13 in one Sunday next Sunday, and then we get to chapter 14 at the, um, so no, wait, sorry, that's late. This is in chapter 14, but it's not just two weeks away. It's more than that. This is right before Easter. 
He says this in verse 60. I'm not going to get to Mark 14, 60 in two weeks. And the high priest stood up in the midst. So Jesus is on trial here before the Sanhedrin. The same group of people that's questioning him in, in, the, in the temple now have arrested him, and he's standing before him. And, he's, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. It is Jesus' claim as the Messiah. By the way, Jesus there, again, quotes from Psalm 110, most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. And in quoting Psalm 110 about himself, causes the high priest to tear his robes, accuse him of blasphemy, and condemning him to death. So just really what amounts in the timeline to two days later, Jesus answers his own question. Here on the Tuesday, he says, he says, how can the Messiah be David's son if David called him Lord? And two nights later, Jesus is going to stand before those same men and say, I am he. I'm this guy. I'm, I'm, I'm not just, a, you know, a rebel rouser. Well, that's what some thought he was. I'm not just a you know, a, a revolutionary teacher. That's what some thought he was. I'm not just a prophet in a historical line of prophets. That's what some thought he was. No, I am something far more than that. I am the one sent by God. In essence, he is saying, not only am I David's Lord, but Sanhedrin, I am your and this is what he declares to us today through the word of God. He declares to you today, my friend, I am your Lord. Have you ever heard people say the phrase, you know, when I was 16, that was when I made Jesus Lord. Sometimes we use that phrase. And I know what people mean when they say that. But can I tell you, that's not really the best Bible language. Your opinion about Jesus doesn't affect his position as Lord. There's not a human being on this earth that's ever made Jesus Lord. Jesus has been Lord before the foundation, since before the foundation of the world. He has ruled and reigned as Lord forever and will rule and reign forever. This is who he is. We can recognize that. We can answer the question, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is our recognition of a position that Jesus already holds. And the scribes didn't see him as such. And what we're going to see in a minute is they will pay an ultimate price for that. But you, my friend, can believe that today unto salvation that Jesus can be your Lord. See the difference from what they thought he would be to who he actually is. We move now from a Christological to a practical. Because if we say Jesus is Lord, if we make this profession of faith, if you today, my friend, for the first time in your life, make the profession of faith that Jesus is Lord, here's what you need to understand. It changes everything about your life. 
the most important decision we can make, the most important conclusion we could ever come to, that Jesus is Lord, upends everything. And so Jesus is going to use two, one teaching and one example as, again, illustration of just how different it is between a fake disciple and a real one. And so we see the difference here of a true disciple and a fake disciple. First, verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. That same group of people, right, beware of them, who like to walk around in log robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Well, let me define just culturally what's happening here because Jesus is describing some things that we maybe not are able to fully picture. So he says three things about the actions are really just kind of the ongoing life of the scribes. First off, the scribes were the interpreters of the law. That's who they were. So you have the Pharisees, ruled, the synagogue, or ruled the, the synagogues out in the country. The Sadducees, who we saw a couple of weeks ago, ruled the temple and are the high priestly family. They're wealthy, independently wealthy. And then alongside of them were these scribes. They weren't really of a party, but they were the ones that interpreted the law for the people. And Jesus says here to beware of them. And then he describes some things about them. Okay, first he says they wear long robes, another, another way of saying that is there were these flowing robes, and what Jesus is describing is the full-length prayer shawls with tassels on the end, very ornate, that were worn at all times, not only by scholars, but scholars wore them. Rabbis also often wore these, and they didn't just wear them when they were doing religious things. They wore them everywhere because they wanted people to know they were. They wanted the recognition that came with their position. So these are people that, that exalt themselves in front of others. And so when they then go out in, the, in the, what Jesus describes as the marketplace, really he's just describing out and about in life. When the scribes would, in their long robes, go out into the marketplace, they would have certain special greetings. Here's what historians tell us that special greeting was that the expectation in Jesus' day when one of these scribes were to walk by, unless you were a laborer in the market, meaning you were actually making something in the market, you were expected to stop what you were doing and rise before the scribes as they walked past you. That that was the way uh, people in first century Israel were expected to honor, to show honor to the scribes. So they would dress in this special dress and they would rock around pompously and as they would pass by people, everyone was expected to rise in their honor. And then when they went places, gathering places, whether it's the synagogue or a banquet or a feast, they were always given the best seats. In the synagogue, they would have been given the benches along the wall, and the most important scribes would have been given the actual seats. It was a square. The people actually sat facing each other and in the middle, and they would have been given the seats behind where uh, the, the Old Testament was read to the people and the people discussed it. So they had the most prominent positions there. They had the head table at feasts. No, they had the head table at uh, any gathering where they were a position of honor. This is what they kind of just, as a part of culture, 
were. Now look what Jesus says they are. He says in verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Devouring widows' houses comes from the idea that scribes, unlike the Sadducees, were not independently wealthy. They depended on donations and often personal benefactors for their livelihood. And unfortunately, this caused many of them to convince vulnerable people, like widows, to give away whatever meager savings they had in support of their quote-unquote ministry. We have people that do this. We have charlatans like this that, ne- that claim the name of Christ in our culture today. Quite unfortunately, people give in to them, and they did then. One such instance, there is a Jewish historian from the first century that tells us of one such instance of this right around the time of Jesus, actually, that the case rose all the way to Caesar Tiberius, the emperor of Rome knew of this practice, and it infuriated people, and yet they were allowed to continue to do it. So this is a well-known abuse of the scribes that Jesus is pointing out. But he also says that for pretense, they make long prayers, that, that these are people, like in chapter six, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns about hypocrites who in the synagogues and on the street corners make long prayers. He's talking about the scribes, that these people would rise in the synagogues and they would rise on the street corners and they would pray prayers. Jesus mentions elsewhere things like, Lord, thank you that I am not like one of these lowly sinners. And these prayers would go on and on and on. And it's all for show. The robes were for show. The the honor in the market was for show. The seats of honor and gathering places were for show. Their prayers were for show. They were empty inside. But most of the people would have looked at them and seen them as if they were spiritual giants. But yet they're dead. They're dead inside. There's no dedication to the true things of God. In Mark chapter 7, which we considered a few months ago, Jesus is, is confronted by the Pharisees, the, the, those who rule the, the, uh, out in the country, right? And we're told in, chapter, in verse 1 of Mark 7 that some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem to kind of help them. And they asked Jesus why the disciples are not following the rules, their rules, concerning washing their hands before eating. And Jesus says to them, in, starting in verse 6, well did, Isaiah the prof- well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother whatever you would gain for me is Corban, that is given to God, then you'd no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. There, Jesus used an example about how the scribes allowed people to get out of supporting their fathers and mothers because they were supporting the scribes. Just another way that they took advantage of people. And so really what's, at, what's being described here, both in Mark 12 and in Mark 7, where Jesus says it explicitly is, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. 
this, this is the point. That there are going to be people who look religious, who look pious, who look like they're doing all of the right things, and they want you to think so. They want you to think they've got it all together. They want you to honor them. They want you to exalt them like the scribes did. And Jesus says, beware of these people. Beware of these hypocrites. See the difference. And then notice something that, that really needs to stand out for us. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Folks, Hell is a real place of eternal conscious torment. That's what the scriptures teach. But I also believe the scriptures teach this, that hell is not an equitable experience. For some, it will be worse than others. And when Jesus says, when Jesus says they, have, they will receive the greater condemnation, he is agreeing with what he says in Luke chapter 12. But the one who did not know and did what, was deserve, what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And for him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The scribes had been entrusted with much and had abused it at the sake of the impoverished to exalt themselves. And Jesus says they will receive a greater condemnation. Now, I just for a minute need to bring that into our day and ask this question, how much has God entrusted with us? How wealthy are we? How privileged are we? How much do we have? And not just in things, we're gonna get to things in a second, not just in things, but in knowledge. Oh, how many Bibles sit in your home right now? We are surrounded by truths of the gospel. And do we abuse them like the scribes did? Do we not take the teachings of scripture seriously? I truly believe this. That many in our day who not only knew the gospel but pretended to follow Jesus so that others would look at them and see them as something special, will receive the kind of condemnation that the scribes received. Lord, would you convict our hearts of this? And then, as the scribes serve as our example of a fake disciple, it is contrasted by the next story. Look at the last several verses. And he sat down opposite the treasury, which is in the temple, Watching the people put money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So once again, let me set the scene for us. Jesus has now moved into what would be known as the court of the women. This is the area that all Jew, of the temple that all Jewish people would be able to enter, including women and children. And in the court of the women were, were three large ram-horn-shaped metal receptacles for offering. There were, sorry, not three, 13. 13 large ram horns, so shaped like a shofar, right, that, that got bigger at the top to keep people from stealing what was at the bottom. And they were metal, probably a probably some kind of fine metal, because like the rest of the temple. 
And these 13, most of them had uh, 13 receptacles. Most of them had specific designation. And so people would come in and place their offering into these receptacles. And if the gift was placed in one of the receptacles, which was intended for priestly service, many of them were intended to pay the priest to make a sacrifice for you, to bless you, to do something for you, then there at those receptacles stood one of the priests or a servant of the priest who would inspect the gift to make sure that it wasn't counterfeit and and inspect the giver to actually question the giver about where they received it and what they're giving it for. And all of this was out in the open. So can you imagine during Passover week, this is, where a million people have descended on Jerusalem, the hectic scene that we would see around these 13 offering boxes. And and they're made out of metal, and they didn't have paper money. They didn't have online giving, okay? These people are tossing in metal coins. This is loud. And you've got people asking, at least at some of the receptacles, questions about who who gave you this? Where'd you get it? What are you giving this for? Can you imagine if we stood at the back and every time somebody dropped something, where'd you get that money? Well, that's what they were doing. And Jesus points out, not the rich people making all the loud noises, but Jesus points out one simple woman, a poor widow, Mark tells us, who puts in two small copper coins. Then he translates that for his Roman audience. Remember, Mark is writing to the Roman church. He's writing to Gentiles who wouldn't have necessarily understood the the Jewish coins that the lady was giving. And so he translates it, and then our translator translated it into a penny for us. Let me just explain. This woman gave uh, two coins, each of which worth 128th of a denarius, which was a laborer's, an unskilled worker's day's wage. She gave two of them. So she gave 164th of a day's wage, and Jesus tells us it was all that she had. Now, in the half of the world, because about half of the world lives on about $2 a day, this would mean that this woman gave about three cents. In America, where wages are inflated, uh, even if you just go at the minimum wage for an unskilled day laborer, uh, considering an eight-hour day, she she would have given $1.50. She's giving a, for most of us, just whether it's three cents or $1.50 or somewhere in between, she's giving kind of a rounding error. Right? It's it's what, just logistically speaking, for the temple, during Passover week, where people are giving probably the equivalents of hundreds of thousands of dollars in our day, this woman is putting in a, a couple pennies, some loose change. And Jesus says, what? She says, I tell you. He says, I, I, I tell you, this poor woman has put in more than all of these wealthy people making all of this noise in these receptacles. Because it is not the amount that matters, it was the heart that matters. Now, I want to point out, this is what I'm getting to in two weeks from Mark 14. I want to point out something, because when I preach that, I'm, I'm going to preach it in a, in a context, but I want to say this about it. In Mark 14... Jesus is out in Bethany, and a woman breaks open some very expensive uh, uh, alabaster flask and anoints Jesus with it, and the disciples kind of get all taken aback. So let me just read that for us really quick and make one simple point. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at, at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, keep that in your mind, and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, to me. For you also have the poor, for you will always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So in just like, like maybe the day, two days, within that 48-hour period, right, a woman is going to break open an alabaster jar of perfume that is worth a year's wage. So this woman in the temple has given one sixty-fourth of a day's wage, and, and the woman a day or two later is going to offer to Jesus a year's wage, considering a six-day work week, 300 denarii would be a year's wage. And Jesus commends both. So let me just make this simple point. It's not the point of Mark 14, which is why I want to bring it into today. It's not about the amount of money. Wealthy people, while it is likely more difficult for wealthy people, that's why we get warnings about wealthy people in Scripture, while it is likely more difficult for wealthy people to have the heart like the poor widow, it is, it's not impossible by the transformation of Christ in their lives. If this woman has a year's wage worth of anointing that she can pour over Jesus' head and he commends it, then we don't need to demonize wealthy people and exalt poor people. We would be doing the opposite of what Jesus is saying. This speaks to the heart of our obedience and sacrifice to Jesus. It's why in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, starting verse 1, Beware of your practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. By the way, like the scribes did. For then you will have no reward for your fathers in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may praise by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Is giving good? Absolutely it's good. Is giving even out of, for the wealthy? Good, sure. It's just as good as it is for the poor. If we're doing it for the right reasons, if we're not doing it so we can be seen and known, listen, I'll just say, you, you'll never give enough money to this church where I'll stand on this platform and brag on you for it. We'll never do it. And people have, over the course of time, given large sums of money to this church, and we just go on like the world keeps spinning. Why? Because they're not looking for the praise. And if they are looking for it, they come to the wrong place. Okay? This is not what we do. We don't look at who gives what. We don't have a big donation board outside. Like, these are the top 100 I was recently, I'm, this wasn't in my notes. I was recently in a Baptist thing. I'm, and a guy came up to me that I know. And he is with the North American Mission Board, our church plant. For those of you that aren't Southern Baptist, our church planting agency in North America. And he gave it to me, he says, man, I want to thank you. I said, what do you want to thank me for? He said, your church was one of the top 20 givers in all of the state of Virginia to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, which plants churches last year. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Great. I hope we give more. 
But man, I don't want a plaque. We don't want a reward. I didn't come and tell you, like that happened several weeks ago. I didn't come and tell you, like, let's brag on ourselves. It's not who we are. Because what? We, we just want to give faithfully, generously, sacrificially, just like we would in all obedience to Christ. We obey Christ in money and more joyfully. That's the example that Jesus is giving us. It's what Paul calls the church at Corinth to in 2 Corinthians 9. He says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that lesson is applied even more broadly when we just think about Christian obedience. The Lord loves cheerful obedience, whether it's money or not. This this is who we are called to be. We are called to not be the scribes, but the ones who will give everything for the cause of Christ. So what? Is my faith in Christ internally evident by my rejection of hypocrisy and desire for true obedience. So we see what it means to truly confess Christ. You are, the, you are the Christ. We recognize who Jesus is. We recognize his Messiahship. So then when we put faith in that, it requires that we ask this question, is there real evidence? And I put the word internal evidence there because you're the only ones that can know. You're, you're the only one that can know if you're if, if you mean this in your heart or not. I can't look into your heart. I can hear your testimony. I can disciple you. We can have great conversations. But you may be pulling one over all of us. And maybe some of you are. I pray that's not true. So internally, you look at yourself and ask, is there evidence that I have rejected the kind of hypocrisy that is demonstrated by the scribes and embraced the kind of true obedience that is demonstrated in this widow woman? Because I have believed in Jesus. Yesterday, we talked about the first part of Titus chapter 1 with the men who came to the men's conference, challenging them all to be morally qualified to lead. Paul actually continues in that chapter. I want to read it for you. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate. Talk about people in the church. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. We've already seen that, right? Like the scribes, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Man, they didn't have a high opinion, did they? Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Listen, church, we can test our profession of faith in Jesus, not by looking and asking the question, am I perfect? Because until you go to be with Jesus, you won't be perfect. But we can test our faith in Jesus by asking this, am I like the scribes or am I like that widow woman? Really what is in my heart? What internal evidence is there that I desire true obedience because followers of Jesus in humility obey Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for, for this 
simple illustration that we can easily see and identify the differences. Thank you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is the Messiah from ages past, that he is the one who rules and reigns, and that if we put our faith in him, he saves us, forgiving us of our sins, healing us of all of our transgressions, making us right with you, and then calling us to this obedient, faithful, true discipleship. Rid us of, of hypocrisy, we pray. Rid my heart of hypocrisy. Rid the hearts of people in this room of hypocrisy. God, would you move us away from being like scribes to the humble example, the widow, and her two small coins, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you heard the gospel today, this truth that Jesus has died for you and you put your faith in him as Messiah, at the end of the service, I'll be out in the lobby. So some of our other pastors will be around. We'd love to share with you. I would say just about every member of our church, probably somebody sitting on your pew could share with you what does it mean for you to trust in the gospel and believe. For the rest of us, we worship the one who has called us to obedience to him. Would you stand with me as we sing?